Alright, uh, we're going to be continuing in the study of the deity of Christ. A um, couple weeks now, that has been the, the topic. Uh, Pastor Russell started a couple weeks ago, and then Omar Edwards uh, followed up last week. And uh, I think they both said, and it is true, uh, that they were given two lessons for one night. Um, I also have been given two lessons for one night. They said that they had to do it in one hour. Mark told me I had two hours. <laughs> so strap in. We're going to go. No, uh, we're going to get this all uh, here. We've got a couple passages that we're going to look at in Mark and uh, Matthew. Two different instances that present the deity of Christ, that present Jesus as who he actually is and who he actually was. But before we get to those uh, two passages, I want to go to the book of Hebrews. I just want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those three verses basically encapsulate the general thing that we know about God and about Jesus. Right? That he is God, that he is the creator that He is the Son of God, that He was here to be our Savior, 100% man, 100% God, and that He did resurrect and is now sitting at the right hand of God. These are things that we know to be true just simply from those three verses that we can know about who Jesus is. Unfortunately, we live in a world today that when you ask the question about who Jesus is, if you were to go into a crowd of people that may not be here in this church and just ask that question, you're going to get all kinds of answers, many of them not correct. So it's an important thing for us to know and to understand exactly who Jesus is and who he claimed to be and who others claimed for him to be. Because those witnesses and the proclamations from God himself Give us the understanding of who He is, which is important because there's a world that doesn't understand who He is. And we need to be the ones to be proclaiming who He is and letting them know. Uh, I was doing some reading on just some different things that people consider Jesus to be. And of course, there's the one that He was just a man. And there's, there's the stuff that He is a God, but not the God. There's stuff about... Um, him being created by God, all kinds of thoughts and stuff out there uh, that just aren't true about who Jesus is. But the Bible certainly gives us a very clear picture of who he is here in Hebrews in a very short statement. But in the rest of the Bible, the, especially in the New Testament, we see some very specific incidents, some very specific times in which we come to see the deity of Christ. 
And we're going to look at a, a couple of those. Um, and we're going to start in Mark. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 23 through 28. Now those of you uh, that like to read and like to study, uh, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Um, it is probably the best Gospel to read if you have a very short attention span. Uh, it goes from one thing to another very, very quickly, uh, starting in, and he doesn't even, doesn't start with the, the birth uh, like the other Gospels do. He begins basically starting right where the ministry of Jesus is starting with John the Baptist showing up in the very beginning of verse uh, uh, 1. And he goes immediately into the baptism of Jesus. He goes into uh, the temptation of Jesus for a couple verses. Um, as he goes into Jesus beginning his ministry. And then starting in chapter 2, we start to see a little bit of the battle that is going to happen between Jesus and the religious rulers of that day. Starting in the, the first part of chapter 2, where Jesus heals a paralytic, but he proclaims to be able to forgive sin. And of course, the religious rulers of that day knew that only God could forgive sins, so they accused him of blasphemy. Going on into chapter 2, there's a question about fasting. John the Baptist disciples were known for fasting. The Pharisaical uh, people were known for fasting, but Jesus and his disciples were not fasting. And so there was this accusation against him, brought against him about fasting, that, you know, why aren't you doing this when others are? Then we get to our chapter, our verses uh, at the end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, and we see another situation in which Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees about something that has to do more with law and religion than about who Jesus actually is. But Jesus is going to kind of put them in their place. Um, he's going to make it very clear who he is. And as we go through this, we will, we will see that. So starting in verse 23, uh, we read, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So we have a situation here where the, Jesus and the disciples are going through a grain field. Now this would not have been atypical at that time. Um, you know, infrastructure would not have been like it is for us today within a city, within an area. So it would have been common for people to go through a grain field to get to places that they were going to get. And it was also allowable, um, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, that while you were going through a grain field, even if it was someone else's property, 
you could grab some pieces of grain and eat. Now, you couldn't take a sickle and take all their grain with them, but you could do this. So the, the disciples were not doing anything wrong in what they were doing and needing the food and eating it. But the Pharisees saw it. And the Pharisees didn't like it. They didn't like it because of the day that they were doing it on. They were doing it on the Sabbath. And to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was kind of, I guess you could say it was at the very core of their religious authority or their perceived religious authority that they had. Um, I, was, I was reading up some stuff on this and trying to uh, enumerate all the things all the rules and regulations that had been put on the Sabbath by these religious leaders will make your head spin. There's rules about how you could carry stuff. There's rules about how you could eat stuff. There's rules about lighting lamps and not lighting lamps. There's rules about how far you can go away from your home, which is an interesting one because if the Pharisees were seeing this, how far away from their home were they? You were only allowed to go 3,000 steps. Now, unless you had put food out 3,000 steps from your home, then you had another 3,000 steps. So they had these crazy regulations, rituals, and rules that they had put upon the Sabbath. And as they watched the disciples eat, they considered that to be working. And they didn't like it. And they were going to... Now, this was at a time when they were really looking for something to go after Jesus. Um, Jesus is gaining in uh, popularity. Um, we're going to see that even more in our next uh, passage. Um, Pharisees didn't like it. The religious leaders didn't like it. So they're asking the question, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to them, and he answers them, and the way that he answers them is he is getting right back at the Pharisees and right at the heart of who they are supposed to be and what they believe. And he is going to, while, while it may not be easy to see on the surface, when you understand who the Pharisees were, you can see what Jesus is doing to them. And he starts in verse 25 when he says, Have you never read? Right? That right there was, was an interesting start from Jesus to the Pharisees. right? Because what were they supposed to be? Yeah, They were supposed to be the biblical scholars, the ones that knew what the Bible said, what the scripture said. And Jesus starts with them, have you never read? So that would have been an interesting way to start this. But he brings up something that happens in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, if you want to go back and, and read the full version of it. Um, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? So David and some people he was with went into the temple, and they were hungry, and the priest allowed them to eat the showbread which was only supposed to be eaten by the priest. But in that circumstance, there was a need. 
And the need was greater than the ceremony or the ritual or the, the rules or the regulation. And see, that was one of the issues that the Pharisees had. They were more interested in the religion. They were more interested in their rules and regulations. They were more interested in lording some sort of perceived authority over the people than they were in the needs of the people. And see, Jesus was coming to change that, right? Jesus was coming to, to flip this idea of the, uh, the need to follow all these rules and regula regulations, which is essentially works righteousness, right? That's what the Pharisees were really all about, was a works righteousness. We can do we can behave and act and regulate and rule and tradition our way to salvation, to being in a place with God where we need to be. Right? Jesus was going to change all of that. But they weren't willing to, they weren't on board with that change. They thought that they had the authority, they liked their authority. Of course, we see in today's world, when people get authority and power, it corrupts them. Uh, it's, it's a difficult thing for people to actually deal with. And the Pharisees were no different there. But Jesus is pointing out to them, you've read this, what had happened here, and you know that there was nothing done to the priest. There was nothing done to the David. There was no, they, they were not punished in any way for this because God cared more about the need than he did the ceremony or the ritual. And when he said there, have you never read, you can also maybe put in there, have you never read, or you may have read, but you don't understand. So Jesus was really going after their, uh, who they were supposed to be. But then he, he goes on to say, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Another way that uh, I saw that I thought was really uh, a good way to put this, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet requirements of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, their, their thing was, all right, all these requirements and rules and regulations, that's what you need to be concerned about. That's not why the Sabbath was made. Why was the Sabbath created? What were we told about the Sabbath? Day of rest. Day of rest. What else are we told about the Sabbath? Coming from Exodus chapter 20, we're told some other things. It was, a, it was a day where they were to remember the covenant. So it was a day of remembrance. It was a day of rest. It was a day of remembrance. It's a day to, to spend some time remembering what God did and, and resting. It's not, it was not created so that you could have all these rules and regulations to where you feel like you just kind of have to sit somewhere and do nothing all day. That's not uh, what was created. That's one of the reasons why Jesus says that his uh, yoke is light, his burden is easy, right? Because of all the stuff that the religious leaders were trying to put onto the people. So the Sabbath was not made for that purpose. 
It was not made for all those rules and regulations, but instead it was made so that man would take time to rest and remember what God had done for them. So Jesus was more concerned about salvation than he was about religion. Right? That's where I think that we... One of the, the, the two things, the two stories that we're going to look at tonight, I think that if you put them both together, one of the things that you can clearly see is Jesus as the Savior. And when Jesus proclaims in the next verse, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's saying, I created the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is a reference back to, to Daniel uh, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And what he is really saying here is this religion that you have, this authority that you think you have, is not what is important. What is important is going to be the salvation that I am going to bring. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He is going after what is at the core of their belief system. He is bringing to them uh, something that they wouldn't have liked very much, but was absolutely the truth. And we have to understand that as we, as we look at who Jesus is, when he proclaims himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. So this is a proclamation from Jesus himself saying, this is who I am. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. When we, when we see that, then that should bring us to an understanding that the religion that they are dealing with, with these rules and all these laws, is not enough. The works righteousness that the Pharisees were involved with is not enough. But Jesus was the, the one that was come to, to change that. So we see him there as the Lord of the Sabbath there in Mark. Then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to see... Probably, I, you know, I don't like to use the term famous, but one of the more well-known stories in the Bible, um, I think even within the secular world, that there are a lot of people that know this story. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. And this is a... a we could spend a whole lot of time on uh, this particular uh, passage here. But I want us to, as we, as we go through, the first thing that I want you to think about, right? So we're going to be talking about the disciples in a boat and Jesus uh, responding to that. And this is not going to be the first time that this has happened, right? Back in Matthew chapter 8, there is another time in which Jesus is on a boat with the disciples and a storm comes up, right? And during that time, Jesus is there and he's asleep. 
And of course, the disciples are scared and they come and they wake Jesus up and he tells the waters to be still and they were. Does anybody recall the terminology that was used by the disciples when this happened? Do anybody recall the description that the disciples made of Jesus at this time? Well, they said, what sort of man is this that calms the seas and waves? What sort of man is this? Now, that's an important thing I want you to keep in mind as we go into this, uh, uh, this passage that we're going to see here, because there's going to be a little transition into what the disciples think. And I think it is very representative of kind of what happens to us. So, starting in verse 22. Now, just for a little bit of context and before we get into our, our passage here, this is following this, uh, this passage that we're doing, this account uh, that we're going to read is following the feeding of the 5,000 plus, right? And immediately after that, there was kind of an issue that Jesus recognized. In John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, as, um, as Jesus, John describes this, he said, so they, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the situation that, that Jesus finds himself in is he's there, he's fed all these people, and there is this clamoring to maybe this is the prophet and maybe we're going to try to make this guy the Messiah, the king. And Jesus knows that that's not what he's there for and it's not the time for this. And so he's going to go away. But he's also going to send his disciples away and he's going to send the people away. So that's kind of an important thing to know as we, we look at uh, this passage here. So starting in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So there's, the first thing that I think that is important for us to see is the divine authority here, right? Jesus told the disciples to go get in a boat, and they did. And Jesus told the crowd to disperse, and they did. So uh, we see his authority immediately. Now, it's really important, too, to let, as we go through this, I want you to just kind of keep in mind that the disciples are doing what Jesus has told them to do. Right? That's an important thing to, to understand, to remember as we go through this. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. 
But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus has gone up to a mountain to pray. The disciples are in the boat and a storm comes up, which is quite often happens on the, the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are in the boat again with the storm. And while Jesus is praying and the in verse 25, we see it says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now, there were four different watches on a night. The four watches started at six. So they went from six to nine, nine to midnight, midnight to three, three to six. So Jesus came to them at the fourth watch would have been 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So the disciples had been out there in this storm for nine hours, approximately nine hours. They had been out in this storm when Jesus comes to them. Now, a couple things about that. First of all, we talked about how Jesus told them to go and they went. Being in obedience to God, being in the will of God is the safest place to be even in the middle of a storm. Being there in God's will is more secure than in any other place you can be, regardless what is going on around you. Don't judge your security by the circumstances and the situations around you. Judge your security and your safety in God by your obedience to Him. Those disciples, while they were in the middle of a storm that was terrible, we, we understand that from what they say. They were still in the best and safest place that they could be by being in the will of God. I think that's a really important thing for us to, to note here. The, the second thing that I think is really important for us to note here. He came to them in the fourth watch after nine hours. Now, a couple things to, to note here. Did he have to go to them to stop the storm? No. Nope, he didn't have to go to them. He could have, just from where he was praying, he could have stopped the storm. Right? But he went to them at a time that he knew was the appropriate time. It was on his time that he decided, okay, now I'm going to go and I'm going to deal with the situation with the disciples. But did Jesus know about this storm? Yeah, I think we can all say that he knew about this storm. He wasn't unaware, and it wasn't that he didn't care about his disciples and the situation that they were in. But he had something that he wanted to do. He wanted to pray. And he had a time that he was going to go to see them. We go through stuff in this life. Some of you are probably going through some bad stuff right now. And we are tempted to wonder, when is this going to stop? Jesus, where is this going to stop? We should take comfort in knowing that in his time, he is going to come. In his time, the circumstances that we're dealing with, he will be there with us. So he comes to them and he is walking on the sea. 
starting in verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So, you know, I certainly can understand where the disciples are coming from here. They're out there. They're being battered by this storm. And then they see someone walking on the water. So I'm pretty certain that that's probably something they had never seen before. Someone walking on the water. So they see it. And they're probably exhausted. And, and they think it's a ghost. They're terrified is what it said. And they cried out in fear. Then I like what uh, this, this next part, verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them. I like that word there, immediately. We're going to see that here again. When it was time, when he came, and they were terrified, and there was fear, Jesus immediately spoke to them. And he said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So we see that there is Jesus' authority as he tells the people to go. We see the obedience of the disciples in doing this. And even though they're in that storm, that being uh, the best place for them to be, and then he refers to himself. He says, take heart, it is I. And it's kind of very similar to when he was um, with Moses at the burning bush, right? When he calls himself the I am. It's kind of a reference back to that. Calling him, when he says it is I, it's for I am. He's calling himself God here. He is calling himself the, uh, he is letting them know that it is him, Jesus. Then we get an interesting situation here with old Peter. Peter is uh, uh, someone I, I find just incredibly interesting because you, you see Peter and you think, yes, Peter, that's good. That's the right thing to do. And then, oh, Peter, what are you doing? All right. He's just juxtaposition. But he's very much what we are, Right. Any of us that look at Peter in any way and kind of want to judge Peter, you better look in a mirror, right? Because Peter does a lot of things that the other disciples don't, didn't do or don't do that are really good examples for us, right? Who was the disciple that was there when Jesus was actually being taken uh, to, before uh, uh, the people to be uh, uh, tried. Sorry, my tongue got tied there for a second. It was Peter, yeah. right? He was the one that was there. Yes, he denied Christ three times, but he was at least there. The rest of them didn't even show up. And here we have a situation with Peter where we see him do some things that are you know, we're like, yes, that's, that's good. And then we see him do something that's like, oh, Peter, why did you do that? But I think that we get some really good lessons from this. And as we see what Peter does and the reaction from the other disciples, then we come to what is really the most important part of this story. There are some really cool things that happen here, right? Jesus walking on the water, 
would be a highlight of this story, no doubt about it. Peter, as we're going to see here, is also going to walk on the water. And that would seem to be the highlight. But it's not going to be the ultimate highlight as we're going to see here. And Peter, starting in verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, first thing here that we see about Peter, he recognizes that if he is going to do this, that he's not going to be able to do this on his own. Right? He doesn't just step out in the water and start walking towards Jesus. He says, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. And that phrase there, if it is you, that's not uh, him questioning if it is. He is referring to him as the Lord. It's, it's more of a, a sense of a sense it is you than it is if it is you. He's not going, if it's really you, Lord, then you'll let me come out and walk on the water. No, Peter is recognizing him as Lord, as Jesus, and he's saying, command me to come out into the water. He wants to go and be with Jesus in that situation. Peter is actually showing his love and his affection for Jesus here. He's also actually showing some faith, right? He's showing some belief. Okay, if you tell me that I can come out into the water then I can come out into the water, right? That's faith right there. That is, you know, trusting in God and trusting in Him all the way means that we trust His promises, what He tells us is true, and when we want to come to Him, He is there for us. So Peter says, Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Well, I, I like that part too. I like the fact that when we say or we want to come to Jesus, he says, come. He says, come. Well, I'm glad that there was a day when I realized that I needed to come to Jesus. And he said, come. And I hope for all of you, you've had the same thing. That there was a time where you're, I need you, Jesus. And he says, come. He doesn't turn those away that want to, to be with him. Praise God for that. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So, all right, this is pretty cool, y'all. <laughs> Peter's a human being walking on water. Right? This is not something to just be overlooked. Oh, okay, he's walking on the water. No, this is actually really, really cool that he is able to do this. And amazing that he is able to do this. But, there's that word in verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out. Now, this is one of those times where people might look at Peter and go, oh, Peter, you were doing so good, and then you got distracted, and you started to sink. How many of you in your life, though, as you're going through your daily walk with God as believers, you're going, and you're like, I've got my eyes on you, Lord. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. Yes, I'm coming to you. Oh, wait, what's this over here? Oh, wait, what's this over here? Right? We get distracted, and we get turned, and that walk that we're on... We begin to sink. 
right? We're no different. I, I deal with it every single day. Some of you might be better than me and do a better job with it. I have it every single day where I'm, I want to be walking with Jesus, but there's distractions. Peter dealt, sees this, and he became afraid, and he began to doubt a little bit, and he began to sink. But as he began to sink, what did he do? He cried out, right? Didn't, the Bible doesn't say that he tried to start swimming or that he, you know, it wasn't about what Peter was going to be able to do. It was about what God was going to be able to do for Peter. And Peter, again, he recognizes, Jesus, I need your help. You know, we, we're often in situations where our faith takes us a certain distance and then we kind of fall. And that's when Jesus is there to help pick us up and pull us along, right? It would be really great if we became Christians and then all of a sudden we were just spiritually mature, right? And we had, you know, full understanding and full knowledge and we were, that's not the way that it works, right? We are, as believers, we are constantly being sanctified, right? We are constantly being matured. We are constantly growing in our faith, or at least we should be. And if we're not, then we've got a whole other different topic that we have to discuss. But we should be constantly and consistently doing that. Well, if that is the case, if we're being sanctified, if we're being matured, if we're being perfected, then that means that we're not starting there. Right? That it is a journey that we're going through. It is a walk with Jesus. There are going to be times where we're going to fail in our faith. There are going to be times where we're going to have doubts. There are going to be times where situations and circumstances make us afraid. And we're going to sink. But thank God we can cry out to Jesus and he's there. And what did he do with Peter? He pulled him up. He pulled him up out of the water and saved him. And uh, it, again, we get to verse 31 when uh, Peter cries out after he begins to sink. He says, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately, there's that word again, immediately, reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this was some chastisement here of Peter. You know, you were, you were doing what you were supposed to do, but you had little faith and you started to doubt. But it made me think about little faith. i just ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus can do something with little faith? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Or with a weak faith? It's better than no faith at all, right? That's right. So while we may want to look at Peter and we hear Jesus say, Oh, you of little faith, we also need to hear that Jesus is saying, Peter, you have faith. All right? So he's not just saying, he's not just degrading or, or, or chastising Peter, but he's also saying, Peter, you, you do have faith. 
You have little faith, but you have some faith. A lot of us are in that same boat. I would say probably every single person in this room has that same issue at some time in your life. Some are more spiritually mature than others. Uh, there are times where we certainly have little faith. But God can still do something with that. And what would he do with Peter ultimately? What did he refer to Peter as? All right, the cornerstone of the church. This man of little faith. So Jesus, even though he, he says that about Peter, um, I think that it's important that we recognize that Peter did have faith. It's better to have little faith and again, let God mature us, right? There are, you know, looking at, at this and looking at this storm, there are certainly storms of correction in our life, right? There are times in our life where we get to a certain place where God has to correct us. Uh, in our life groups recently, not too long ago, uh, we were looking at the captivity, and the exile of the, the, Israel, the Israelites why did that happen to them? Because God got to a point where he said, you've done enough. I'm going to have to punish you. And this is the punishment that you're going to get. Right? That's why I mean, it's very clear that God said, I've had enough of this. So this is going to be your punishment. So there's certainly storms of correction. But there's also storms of perfection. And not storms that are perfect. In the sense that, you know, this is a perfect storm like the movie or anything like that. But storms that mature us. Storms that grow us. Storms that test our faith. Peter tells us that our faith will be tested. But what about that faith is supposed to happen? It's going to be refined like gold. So this the storm that they were going through... Uh, was one of those storms of perfection. God was, Jesus was using this uh, to develop Peter. Don't think that we should miss that part about Peter here and having the faith. Then we see something where we start to see here, we've already seen Jesus' authority, we've already seen Jesus' power in walking on the water we see his, his power over creation, his deity in that way. But then we see something that I think really kind of sums all this up. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So there is certainly Jesus' power over creation, right? Jesus is God because he is the creator and he is the one that can make the wind cease. He is the one that can calm the storm. So this is a clear indication, a clear presentation of Jesus as God. All right? Then verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying something that's a little bit different than what they had said in chapter 8. Right? Yes. Chapter 8, they said, who is this man? And Mark, if we want to go back to, to Mark chapter 6, um, as he is describing this in uh, verse 52, 
he says, and they were, uh, well, let's go to verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So Mark gives a little bit of insight here as well as to where the disciples were prior to this. They had just seen the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But Mark kind of lets us know they didn't quite understand exactly who Jesus was just yet. But here, Matthew lets us know that they do. When he says, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So now here is a proclamation from the disciples, a recognition from the disciples that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. That is the highlight of this story. That is the most important thing that comes out of this. See, this, this whole Bible, right, starting from in the beginning God, all the way through, it's about Jesus and about God. And everything in here is pointing us to that truth. So as we, we see what the disciples experience here, Right? They experience the miracle of God walking, of Jesus walking on the water. They see the miracle of Peter walking on the water. They see Jesus saving Peter. They see Jesus coming onto the boat and the wind ceasing. So they are seeing evidence time and time again. Of course, they've just come from seeing him feed the 5,000. They're seeing evidence time and time and time again of who Jesus actually is. And this Bible contains instances and stories and circumstances time and time and time again that let us know who Jesus actually is. And they come to the understanding, truly you are the Son of God which should be the same understanding that we are coming to. And I imagine in a room like this, if you're here on a Wednesday night Bible study at McGregor and you're listening to this guy teach that you are someone who is a believer and you are someone that, uh, uh, that understands this. Again, there's a whole world out there that doesn't. There's a whole world that doesn't believe these sorts of things so the more that we understand it, the more that we trust in that, the more that we believe in it, the better we are equipped to deal with those circumstances and situations when we are presented with people that don't have this understanding of who Jesus really is. So going, going back to Mark, as we look at Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. And we see him proclaim himself to be greater than their religion, to be greater than their rituals. Now, reminds uh, uh, of a verse, uh, Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So in that, when uh, Hosea is writing this, he's making it known that what is really important is the love for Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus, not the, the sacrifice, the burnt offerings, those rituals, those traditions, those things like that. And I really think that when you kind of look at both of these things together, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord over creation, if you kind of combine these two things, what we really get a picture of is Jesus as the Savior. Right? Works righteousness, religion is not enough. It's Jesus. This uh, situation here where they're out on the storm, we see Jesus again as the Savior with the disciples in the, the, the circumstance that they are in as they come to proclaim, truly you are the Son of God. All of this, you know, this whole study about uh, the deity of, of Christ that uh, uh, we've been going through and it will continue for a few more weeks is to point us not just to, to, to know that Jesus it was God here on earth, 100% God, 100% man, right? We can believe that without necessarily accepting him as our Savior. The point it really is in all this to come to a point where we understand truly you are the Son of God. Now, what are you going to do with that? All right, this, this question of who Jesus is that we deal with. It's the most important question that there is because coming to that understanding of who Jesus is will lead us to a response, right? And there's one or one or two, excuse me, there are two responses. We make one or the other, right? We respond by acknowledging exactly who Jesus is as the Savior, or we respond and we don't accept that. And of course, one of those leads to eternal life, salvation, peace, joy, knowing God, uh, knowing that there is a place for us in heaven, the other to eternal punishment, eternal separation. So coming to know who Jesus is, understanding exactly who he was, is important for us, but it's important for us, it's important for our own lives and, and how we accept that, our response to it. But it's important for us so that we can tell others about who Jesus really is. There's, I, I have this uh, uh, kind of, I guess I get onto uh, social media, mainly Facebook. And there's this little thing on Facebook called Watch. And it's a dangerous little place because if you start watching certain videos, then it starts showing you more and more of those videos. So if you 
If you watch videos of like people falling, you know, being clumsy and doing, then you'll start to see more and more and more of that. Well, recently I've seen some videos on woke preachers and false teachers and different things like that. And going through, and so I'm getting more and more of these videos that I've kind of been watching. And it is amazing what people who proclaim to be teachers of the Bible say about who Jesus is and about what the Bible says. And let me tell you something. There are some people out there who, to put it nicely, have a distorted version of who Jesus is. There are some that have a very evil version of who Jesus is. Um, one of the, the most, well, I don't want to say it's interesting because it's actually kind of sad, but one of the things that I've seen a lot of recently from pastors is this acceptance of the, the LBGTQ, I don't know all the uh, initials, accepting that and saying that God, that Jesus would have accepted that, that he was inclusionary, um, the, the transgender stuff, and, and, and Jesus is, was, would have been a socialist, and all these different things that people are saying about Jesus that are clearly not true and clearly distorted, and they're pastors at churches, and there are people coming to their church, and they're hearing this, and they're believing it. And it's a sad, sad thing. I watched a video the other day of our lovely president at a church of a senator who is one of the biggest pro-choice advocates that there is. And he's up there reading out of the Bible. Like, and, and it just, it kind of made me mad a little bit. You know, here's this guy knowing what he claims publicly and how much that goes against what this Bible says and what Jesus is. I mean, Jesus as the creator of man and then to, to, to claim to be a pastor and to say, oh no, you can abort his, not yours, not mine, not anyone else's, his creation. That's the world that's out there. That's the problem that we're up against. So for, for us as believers, we have to take the time to really dive into God's word and come to understand who Jesus is so that we can be the ones out there, as we talked about uh, in the lessons, uh, the, the series in Jude, contending for the faith. Well, how can you contend for the faith if you don't know what this book says? So I have uh, I've enjoyed being able to, to go through this. You know, there, you get these opportunities and you go to passages that you've read time and time and time again. But then you see something a little bit different, something a little bit new every time. And uh, so I was really grateful to be asked to do this, and um, I hope that uh, you will take the time as we go through this series. Go back and read some of these passages and study them. Get to know, well, that personal relationship with Jesus is the most important thing that we have. 
get to know him better. How do we get to know him better? In God's word. Yes, we pray. We spend time with him in prayer. But right here is everything that we need to know about him. So let's dig into those things. Let's find these things. And oh, yes, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Yes, he is Lord over creation. That way, when we are presented with opportunities to proclaim who Jesus is, we will be able to do so.